I'm Clint Work, Fellow and Director of Academic Affairs at KEI, and this is part two of my conversation with Rob Rabson, which covers Rob's time as the Director of the Office of Korean Affairs in 2012, up to his final assignment in the U.S. Foreign Service as the Acting Ambassador to the U.S. Embassy in Seoul. Well, again, to do my job yeah, properly. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm, no, I'm, no, it's, uh, believe me, it's, it's more I'm, my fault. I'm thwarting you at every opportunity. <laughs> no, no. Um, but but fast, fast forwarding a little bit um, to your, your next Korea Focus uh, mm-hmm. posting, which again was, uh, not again, was, was here in D.C. as the director of the Office of Korean Affairs um, at the State Department from 2012 to 15. Um, you know, you occupied various other positions between the 97, 2000, and uh, the 2012, 15 period at state, which I, I'm going to touch on in a second. But this period, this 2012 to 15 period, um, it overlapped with uh, consecutive conservative administrations in South Korea after two consecutive progressive administrations from the aforementioned Kim Dae-jung to No Mu-hyun. And then to, of course, Im Yong-bak and Park geun the two consecutive conservative administrations. Um, and during President Obama's uh, second term in office amid this policy of so-called strategic patience towards North Korea without getting into all the various critiques and editorializing on that as a policy, but also the broader foreign policy of, of pivoting to Asia, right? In, in, uh, sort of away from the Middle East and our conflicts there and sort of reorienting, refocusing on on Asia as a, as a whole. And of course, it's during this period that North Korea, under a new leader, Kim Jong-un, um, tested its third nuclear test in, in 2013 and began to ramp up, and this is lost a bit, but began to ramp up its missile testing in a manner that really did sort of presage uh, what would what would be much more robust um, and unstable in 2016 and 17, but started to ramp up its missile tests, the different number and types of tests at that at that time. Um, of course, the U.S. South Korea alliance had evolved continually as it always does. Uh, the Chorus FTA had been negotiated and signed, negotiated, renegotiated, and then signed. Um, and several joint vision statements between both the U.S. and South Korean presidents had had laid the groundwork for what leaders call the broadening and deepening of the relationship, really sort of more systematically incorporating the different things we've already been discussing, mm-hmm. Seoul's economic growth, deepening economic ties, shared democratic values, um, and then beyond. Um, and so I wanted to ask, um, before you actually started as the director of Korean Affairs at State, um, you had a, a broad array of experiences uh, in Southeast Asia, I think Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. Um, I was director for the Southeast Asia desk. That's right, at state, yeah, right? Yeah. And then KL, Kuala Lumpur is the DCM. And then in India as well. Right? India at the beginning of the 2000s. Yeah. And, and then, then this was my excursion away from, uh, <laughs> excursions away from Northeast Asia. From Northeast Asia. But and India, then, and then last before coming back, uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, yeah. Afghanistan um, for a year, yeah. And so, obviously, none of these are are working directly on Korea, um, but it did afford you, I understand, a close opportunity to see and to work with Korea and Koreans from important, you know, third party, you know, third country regional perspectives. And so, what what was that like? Other examples you could give, and then how it sort of further informed your experience and view of yeah, Korea. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the experiences there in in, in those uh, other Asian destinations, uh, Southeast Asia in particular, and I. Was quite familiar and comfortable in Southeast Asia, having gone to high school in Singapore for three years. Graduated from the Singapore mm. American School. Mm. Go Eagles! Um, <laughs> the Eagles. Okay, I went to Boston College. Another Eagles. <laughs> Another <yeah>. Eagle. <laughs> um, but the Koreans, you know, ha- have had a presence in Southeast Asia and even India for a while. Yeah. You know, as their economy grew, it was export dependent. And what markets, you know, were they looking at? Initially, they were looking at developed markets. You know, cheap labor. They were producing sneakers, Nike, mm, sure. um, plywood, textiles, and all going to developed markets. But after a while, they began to export some to those Southeast Asian destinations. But setting up factories, setting up production, investing in these countries, and that began to take off. Uh, I'd say in the '90s, you know, uh, Daewoo and his entrees into Vietnam. Uh, they were looking as their 
cost of labor had gone up looking to uh, invest elsewhere where they could still uh, be profitable. So logical, go to Southeast Asia. So their footprint was, by the time I was working Southeast Asia, uh, not as a high school kid, but they uh, you know, already had the makings of a, of a major presence in India as well. They were doing a, a lot of work, uh, you know, the, the auto the auto companies, Hyundai, Daewoo at the time, but uh, um, Kia was separate at that time. What was the other? I think uh, Samsung was even in, in trying to, to get in the cars. But they, they had a footprint out there. They were doing business. Uh, they had a, Koreans had a reputation for making deals quickly. Mm-hmm. And in this, from my India experience, I, I remember hearing comments from businessmen, community, Indian officials that the Koreans, are, you, know, you can kind of deal with them pretty quickly, get things done. With the Japanese, it, it takes a bit longer. Now, maybe that's because the Japanese bring a higher level of quality to their investments and all, or just more methodical. But the Koreans are, you know, the Chabal chairman and owners, they're just, you know, they're businessmen, operators. At that time, it was get in, expand, market, get get a hold in the market, yeah, and expand market share, and then, and, then, and then sort of circle back and, and refine yeah. it. Yeah. But they, they got that footprint. They were there. They were known quantity and generally very positive presence. And so they had expanded on that. And at some point in time, 15, 20 years ago, uh, as Korea became a uh, a donor country, mm. you know, it graduated from the ranks of recipient years before that. But they became, sure. uh, launched a uh, substantive aid program in these markets. Now, the criticism of the aid program is that it was too tied or linked to commercial opportunities, and that's something they have to. They've, they've been growing away from. Haven't gotten rid of it completely, but they've been growing away from, sort of like the Japanese. But nonetheless, you know, next to Japan, the Koreans were you know the other Asian player mm. in those countries. So I think it's redounded well to uh, you know, their understanding of, uh, of the importance of the rest of Asia, which now is currently is a huge issue. It's one they've been wrestling with. All Everyone's been wrestling with. How do you divest from China? I mean, you know, sure. they got into China in a big way in the last decade plus, decade and a half. That was the go-to market. Everyone went there. But now how do you diversify away from that? How do you divest from China if that's possible? And they've done Again, gangbusters in Vietnam. They're looking hard at, and doing a lot of business in Indonesia. They're bringing the development assistant to help with capacity building with us bilaterally, multilaterally. So again, that's this is you know becoming the pivotal state. As much as the current administration in Korea, uh, the UN administration would like to say they've reinvented the wheel on this one. Uh, no, it's been it's been an evolutionary process. Yeah, that's right. And the Moon team gave Southeast Asia high priority, and I think he was the the only Korean president to visit all. All countries during his tenure. In fact, he may have done it all like in a year and a half. I think that's and it's also good he did right, it when he yeah. did because with yeah. the COVID, he that would yeah. have been yeah, lights out on that. So yeah, it's uh, it's 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 redounded to their benefit, and they've been you know a strategic partner of ours in, in many uh, in, in many cases. You know, you go back to the Vietnam War, where you now in retrospect, you know, there's some misgivings about having done that at the, but at the time they were there, uh, we incentivized it for them to go, but they. You know, they committed treasure blood in the defense of Vietnam and democracy back in the 60s. But much later, you know, more recent um, efforts, they were supportive in Iraq and in Afghanistan. I went up and visited their uh, PRT a couple times north of Bagram, Mm -hmm. uh, about 100 miles, 75 miles, 100 miles north of uh, Kabul. They had a PRT up there, an interagency Korean effort Mm -hmm. uh, that ran amazingly well for, you know, as far as interagency efforts go in Korea. You know, they're always at each other. But the military, the police, mm-hmm. uh, the trade ministry, COICA, uh, and others were all up there under the uh, the head of a, a foreign service officer. Yeah, yeah. And so they did some good work up there in building capacity and um, helping with governance issues. And they, you know, uh, then they finally pulled the, uh, pulled the mission when, the, uh, when we were transitioning out and they no longer needed yeah. to be there. That's uh, there's so much there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna not I'm gonna try not to do too much of this uh, my on my own part. But I mean, just the but back to the Korea desk days. And well, 12, I, yeah, I mean, to 15, I, I want to get to the Korea desk because I can't help myself as a historian of this relationship too, or, or at least a poor man's historian of this relationship. Um, the Vietnam piece is, and again, this is its own discussion, but it's very little known among most Americans. Um, you could say a lot of things are, are a little known amongst most Americans, <laughs> tongue in cheek. Um, but how uh, enormous Korea's involvement was uh, to the U.S. war in Vietnam, and and as you mentioned, I mean the the Hyunjins of the world, the parent company of Korea Air, 
Hyundai. These are their first These international contracts. Companies, all yeah. Korea, Building Quonset yeah. huts, you name it. You yeah. know, some transportation. Yeah. First international Launching contracts. That. They parlay that into the oil wealth in the Middle East to start building things there. And at one point, I think it was in, in 72, right when Nixon's starting to draw down the U.S. forces, there are, of course, more overall U.S. forces there than Koreans. But on a per capita basis, there were more Koreans there than there were Americans for a certain window of time. That's a remarkable fact that I think – and there's so much more to that that experience no, there. there. A lot of it rightfully controversial and and rife for examination and reconciliation and there have been some efforts towards yeah. that between Vietnam and Korea as they've deepened their relationship. Of course. I um, think, you know, from the time, the many times I've been to Vietnam in a professional and personal capacity, I was director of the five countries in Southeast Asia, mm. so-called mainland Southeast Asia, okay. Vietnam, Cambodia, okay. Burma, Thailand, and Laos. Um, but got to Vietnam a bit, then traveled there later to the family. And uh, it's remarkable how quickly Vietnam turned the page on, you know, the whole American war. Period, I was talking to describe about it. that. Recently, and the yeah. Koreans, of course, were part and partial of that. And they, they did were. some bad things that still resonate today. But nonetheless, maybe it's just a, uh, a manifestation of a, of a communist autocratic regime that they can turn the pages like that. But I think uh, the people have, many of the people have as well. They see somewhat of a kindred soul in, in Korea, South Korea. They used to think North Korea was that sort of kindred soul. That's gone by the wayside. Now, you know, they're both in the in the close shadow of China. Mm. They both had to fight neighbors to sustain, gain their independence and identity, a struggle that goes on. But then deeper than that, you know, the Confucian aspects of their cultures, um, education being prized, you know, I don't see that as highly in the rest of Southeast Asia. I always thought that maybe Vietnam was a little bit geographically misplaced. Um, it has that drive, that energy, that focus on excellence, you know, yeah. whether it's education, of course, with the communist manteau, you know, affecting that. But nonetheless, there's there's some compatibility there mm. uh, strategically as well as uh, you know, culturally. And, there are interesting par parallels yeah, there. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so anyway, that's a, that's a, that's another digression that uh, we- could, I, yeah. I digressed us yeah. down that path. So yeah. yeah. I, um, but yeah, so- being being at but Park Gune, you got up to I guess Park yeah, Gune, and you're North at the Korea. Desk. I'm at the desk, and you know it's a uh, 20, 20 man desk. Okay, of course, a coordinating point within the U.S. interagency DOD Treasury, where we work to not only you know advance state initiatives and policies, but trying to coordinate work with the NSC and coordinating where the central focal point, like any desk, is sort of a focal point of activity. Sure, sure. Uh, extremely busy. Uh, I arrived uh, just a couple months after Kim Jong Un ascended. And uh, it was just a few uh, uh, months after that, that uh, Park Geun-hye was elected. That's right. Yeah. And with all the, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was a, like all Korean elections, it was heavily contested, a lot of friction, tension, resurrections of old skeletons, you know, uh, connection with her father. Was it good, bad, indifferent in terms of her prospects as a leader? But she was on the scene and we, you know, had to work with her. And I thought, you know, it, it was going well, as well as could be, uh, no major disruptions, but it um, unwound, you know, uh, two, three years in, of course, Saywall was the uh, the first major indicator that something was amiss. Yeah, I was in Korea at that time. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, Distinctly. tragedy of immense proportions, but the response was equally tragic, if not incompetent or a dereliction of, of, of duty, not necessarily by her, but she ended up because of her presence or lack of it. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ended up taking the consequences. Uh, but I guess it, it just un it, it unwound the rest of her administration. I remember talking with Mark Lippert. We were in Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Tokyo and he was over for what was called the Three Amigos confab. This is our three ambassadors from Beijing, Seoul, and Tokyo okay. had a habit or a practice of getting together every year, rotating the uh, the venue. And this was, and Carolyn Kennedy was our ambassador in Tokyo. That's right. Okay. So yeah. Lippert and uh, was it Max Baucus? Maybe it was Max Baucus came over for the- Senator from Montana? Montana, yeah. yeah. Montana. So yeah, that's right. Max Baucus <laughs> um, came over. But anyway, I just remember this was the time when there were the first indicators that there was a, something going on amiss with her- uh, her style of governance and how she ran the blue house and her behind the screen sure. advisors. Um, and Mark and I were talking and uh, he goes, yeah, 
what do you, you know, we were just, he's asking, what do you make of this, you know, Rod? And I just said, this has legs. Yeah. You know, because we're trying to get a beat on whether this was going to pull her down or pull her off course so far that she wouldn't be a reliable partner. But I said, this has legs. This is, this is not looking good. But this was all uncharted territory, you know, yeah. an elected president and then removing an elected president. Yeah. And then, of course, we know the rest of the story. A few months later, the candlelight vigils and the constitutional processes that went through. Yeah. Uh, which gets into the larger story of the polarization of Korean politics that continue on. And is there, is there, will there be an opportunity at some point in time for them to, on their own volition, or not break out of this, this destructive cycle? Could ask that question about the Americans too. If we're being, if we're being, I, I, I would at least. Yeah, that gets to the. I won't put those words that, in your mouth. That gets but. to the seventeen to twenty-one period. It does. It does. Fair <laughs> enough. We'll get. We're, we're getting there, right? Yeah. Um, I, this, I think this question, I want to ask this question because I think it's an important one. Um, it, and in some ways we've been touching on it, but I just to specifically zero in on it. Um, ha- having uh, in my own field research interviews talked with, uh, you know, former diplomats um, and military officials as well, yeah. I'm always interested to hear about the dynamic between uh, working on Korea from a variety of vantage points. And so what I mean by that um, is, you know, like for military officials, they're stationed at USFK or they're in CFC and then maybe later on they're at Indo-PACCOM um, or at the Pentagon, right? So from all these different vantage points and and for foreign service officers, it's in the embassy, it's back at state or, you know, as you've alluded to, you're stationed elsewhere, but you're also seeing Korea and, and, and engaging with Koreans. What do you see? Are there are there certain tensions between being in these different places, the vantage points you get from them and, and, and the iterated process of going from one to the next that, um, yeah, I, mean, I guess just speaking to that dynamic yeah. of, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question and it gets to the heart of, you know, how does the government the U.S. government engage with and on what basis do they engage, what perception and perspective do they engage the Koreans with? I mean, I think we have a, we, we have a general view, an ally, a partner. Mm. Uh, the Koreans bring a lot of assets to the table. Of course, we're there principally to defend them under the security treaty, which is, which is explicit. But as Korea has grown, evolved politically, economically, scientifically, culturally, you know, it's become it's become Korea. It's, it's, it's really made its mark in so many different ways. Um, has our tendencies, has our ways of engaging with them uh, at the bureaucratic level, has that evolved as well? Mm. In many cases, it has. In some cases, it hasn't. You know, the security alliance goes back to the beginning. Sure. And back then, it wasn't a partnership, even if we might have used the word back in the 50s, even 60s. Yeah. We were the senior and only partner. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, yeah. And so we knew best and the Koreans, you know, your job is to just follow through and take our lead. Mm. Maybe some token efforts to show partnership and yeah. all. Yeah. yeah, just for credibility and self-dignity. Um, mm. But over time, you know, where we've internalized now and as part of our mantra and our position, we see Korea increasingly as a partner and it behooves us to treat them like that. It's hard when, you know, we're in charge of much of the firepower that in the, at the end of the day is going to protect, defend Korea from, uh, from the north or, or elsewhere. And so, you know, moving towards in practice rather than just in words, the notion of a partnership, it's hard because mm-hmm. now we're, it's really come to its conclusion now with the issue of nuclear deterrence. Yeah. And that's where the rub is and whose country is it, who's making the decisions. And, you know, this gets to the existential nature of a relationship like this and, and particularly on the ultra sensitive issue of nuclear weapons. So I think it's, you know, at state we're diplomats. This is what we do. We're, we're good at uh, either, you know, being diplomats or being diplomatic and treating counterparts the way they deserve to be treated with respect mm-hmm. and dignity and including them. But I understand, I, I, I get it with, you know, with the military when they come in and they still see themselves as perhaps, you know, the senior partners and the more experienced on global side. But, uh, but at the same time, relationships are very tight in, among the military. Yeah, yeah. Very tight. Uh, I don't want to disparage that in any way, relations between the officer corps 
uh, in the Korean military and the U.S. military have been bonded. And that is you know, these friendship associations, societies, the Korean veterans associations. That's also part of the glue that makes the relationship go on. The military, and this gets into sort of this trickier waters, the Korean military, and on some level, maybe the U.S. military, but the Korean military by definition is conservative, politically conservative given its birth. You know, the modern Korean military is a creature of, you know, came out of the, the Korean War and then the uh, political uh, leadership, uh, Pak Chung-hee in principle, mm -hmm. followed by Chun Doo-won. So there's a conservative bent to it. And, you know, that that can skew thinking a little bit. We, of course, you know, don't, our military doesn't get involved in politics. This whole issue of, of um, you know, the nature of progressive governments versus conservative governments, mm -hmm. attitudes and towards the North, et cetera, you know, it, 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 it adds another dimension to the, the sensitivities of, of how we go about engaging with an ally and a partner. Yeah. But that's, you know, that, that issue needs much, much deeper exploration. But it's there, the yeah. lineage of, um, of the military versus politicians, and then, of course, regional issues, and whether you're from the South, East, or Southwest, you know, still play a role there. Sure. Getting back to the original thoughts, you know, it's your questions focused on... Yeah, well, I mean, even even for a foreign service officer, the there's the distinction between you know diplomats and officers, yeah. but but then also the distinction for a foreign service officer like yourself from the vantage point of engaging Korea from being so to speak on the ground, yeah. and then when you come back to state, yeah. and you know, so for example, sure. as director of the desk, you're you're not just now engaging Korea from DC. And with all the different departments and agencies with which you, with with whom you're working to do so, and all these functional areas, you're all you know you're you're also doing it, having advanced in your career from a new vantage point in the sort of U.S. Foreign Service hierarchy. You know, are there are there things, there are ways you view the relationship and the thing, the direction that U.S. policy should go when you're in the embassy on the ground yeah. in Seoul that changes once you're in D.C. because there are different institutional and policy pressures. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah no, the bilateral, yeah. I mean, you're in the- Each has no, its constraints, the in Seoul, right? You're focused on the bilateral yeah. relationship, yeah. the alliance, the bilateral. Of course, there are, you know, there are multilateral dimensions to that. Uh, you're focused on that. When you're back in Washington, these other issues, multilateral issues, multi-agency, different issues, you're sure. there to help oversee them, try to manage them, direct them, guide them, uh, inform them. The, the U.S. military in Korea has a, a very simple mandate. You know, they have to be ready to fight tonight. Yeah. You know, and how they go about preparing for that, you know, staying ready. They're Korean partners in lock sync. That is the mission. Yeah. Staying in that good sync and not being diverted uh, from that by all the other distractions out there. The other point is that, you know, our military colleagues, officers, as well as enlisted, rotate in every year, two years. That's right. Yeah. So some do come back for second and third. So there is some continuity. But in most parts, new people are learning, are learning new Constantly, lessons. Constantly, yeah. And yeah. one of the, one of the and as being a diplomat who served there many times, and I'm not the norm. I mean, we mm. don't have so many diplomats coming back for second and third and fourth tours. They mm. end up going somewhere else, China, Japan, or elsewhere in Asia or the world, is that we build up that knowledge, uh, institutional knowledge of how working with the Koreans' experiences before, not always driving what we're doing now, but there's a reference point. And one thing I, you know, you notice, and again, this is sort of teasing out sort of lessons learned, the Koreans are tenacious in endearing and not so endearing ways. You know, when they get on a mission, they keep coming at it and they keep coming at it. So for those who are, and if you're all in sync with each other and it's all good news and it's easy to be buds. But when you have differences of opinion. What fun is that? Yeah. <laughs> and the Koreans, when they have to get something from you and we see it playing out today, they just keep coming back at it. So my little, it's almost gratuitous, but my words of encouragement to our um, military colleagues, for instance, dealing, negotiating the SMA. Sure. That was one of the fun spots. I was on the negotiating team yeah. back in 13-14 uh, for the yeah. previous okay. SMA. Okay, yeah. The first, oh, not the first, but the, it was the eighth, seventh, maybe the seventh. Uh, I think the seventh, seventh, if memory serves. So yeah. that was a knockdown dragout. Yeah. Fighting over like about 
3%, 2 3%, a very small. Yeah, in the, in the context of the Trump administration, it people don't remember that because it yeah. became so politicized under Trump. Well, of course, we'll get to some of it yeah, in a yeah. second. But, but even in, it was still politicized for them because oh, they were yeah. under marching orders. This is under Park Gane yeah. that we cannot be seen as giving the American anything more than is fair or they deserve on this. They're going to fight. They have to, for the public optic, they have to sure, fight. Sure, there's a domestic their, political standing angles out. So there, we, yeah. I mean, it was a, I wasn't going to say it was kabuki and there's a lot of performance diplomacy going on here, but nonetheless, we had to come up with this concrete formula that really at the end of the day was only going to be, you know, marginally higher than the so previous much and maybe than, a few yeah. conditions tweaked or so, but we're going to end up at the sort of almost at the starting point, but just a little bit more. So we could oh, all go yeah. home and say, yep, we got a little bit more cost of doing this thing is, you know, is going up there. Um, but whether it's that or you're dealing with you know a request up to five times as much as the previous agreement, the Koreans were. I mean, well, essentially on the five timer, they just we didn't get into negotiation because there was nothing to negotiate. It was an all starter, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they came up with a proposal that had a substantial increase in it, but that was not um, acceptable back in the, the eleven the White to thirteen percent isn't five ta- isn't five hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even, even even better than that over five years. You sure. know, they, but that wasn't going to work, so it didn't happen. But my back to my sure. words of wisdom or guidance or suggestions to the counterparts is, you know, you're in the trenches there. You got one stars, you got colonels, you know, part of the SMA team and doing their bit or other parts of the relationship, and it gets exasperating. You know, the Koreans. Um, or, you know, as I said, tenacious, but they're prone to take end runs and do things that we don't think, well, gee, why are you an ally if you're doing this, you know? Mm-hmm. My point, this is Sue Hard Knox doing, going through a lot of trade negotiations with them back in, when I was in the 90s on mm-hmm. things like soju, Titanic, you know, MPA screen uh, quotas. The screen quotas, quotas screen yeah, quotas, sure, that's its own, yeah. Automobiles, yeah. Uh, pharmaceutical prices, you know. When you get into it and it's getting heated and you're just going, these SOBs, you know, I can't deal with them, you know. Stand up, take a deep breath. Yeah. Come out of the trench, go out, just take a deep breath and don't personalize it. But yeah. we end up, you yeah. can't. You're right there with the person who's your counterpart and you're personalizing this, you know. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of, of course, military business and camaraderie is based on your buddy or your trench, or they call it, the uh, your battle buddy. Yeah, sure. you know, the person you're going to fight with. Sure. Or, you know, if you're doing this, anyway, but come back, take the deep breath. And realize that at the end of the day, this will get done. Yeah. Don't take these hard feelings away with you. These these tortured elements of the relationship are also indicative of its strength in some ways. It yeah. Just because it's so close. No pain, no gain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hate uh, to just trivialize it in um, that way. So turning to uh, – I'd love to say my final questions, which they are technically, but but they, they're fodder for a lot more. Um, sort of bringing things – forward fully, but you know, in this case, it's still a decade period. Um, or not really. It's actually extending from your time as director of Korean Affairs in 15 um, to the present day. And what I really find interesting is that from, from 2012, when you came back to state as the director of Korean Affairs, until your retirement from the Foreign Service in 2021, you are consistently engaged with either Korea directly or Northeast Asia. So you went from from being the director of Korean Affairs at State for three years uh, until 2015, and then you became political minister and acting acting deputy chief of mission or DCM in the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo from 2015 to 18, mm-hmm. and then from there you moved on to serve as the DCM in Seoul from 2018 to 21, and then finally as uh, charge d'affaires or acting ambassador in the U.S. Embassy in Seoul from January 2021. To your retirement in July of 2021, when Ambassador Goldberg arrived. Actually, that's a year later. Uh, I, oh, 20, yeah, I, I left Seoul in 20 July 2021. Came back to the State Department and began the process of retiring. Of, of so retiring, I, I formally okay. retired in the uh, end of April, early May. Okay, excuse 2022. me. Thank you for. I that think correction. Ambassador Goldberg arrived in July of 2022. 2022, he did. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah. Um, Excuse me. Thank you for correcting that's, those dates. That's, that's an important uh, distinction. Nine years of um, yeah. back-to-back-to-back Korea, Japan, Korea. And and of course, uh, it was during this period, this was the fire and fury period, uh, by some uh, people's estimations, very real threat of another Korean war breaking out. Uh, then, of course, the sudden historic turn mm-hmm. um, to engagement and diplomacy, albeit ultimately stalemated between both Koreas, between the US and North Korea. The emergence of of great power competition, sort of officially mm-hmm. in national security strategy and national defense strategies, um, and in broader uh, psychology, the worsening of U.S.-China relations, 
of course, uh, the global pandemic and the rise uh, really globally uh, of populism, both right and left-wing populism, but the rise of right-wing populism in the states uh, and its embodiment in our president, uh, our former president, Donald Trump, who was perfectly willing to question, if not sort of openly decry, uh, U.S. alliances and and sort of long-standing um, uh, assumptions and and verities of U.S. foreign policy, um, and so rather than get into the specifics of this period, because it's still so fresh and there's so much there, I, I was just curious. Um, could you just reflect on maybe several of your key takeaways that came of your experience? participating in, I've used this word before already, but this truly this maelstrom um, uh, and and especially from such a high level vantage point in both Seoul and Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's already been almost six years. I guess it has been. Yeah. Six years. Yeah. Uh, I was in Tokyo in 17. Well, I was in Tokyo 15 to 18, but I was uh, there um, when the uh, Trump administration launched. Mm. And you know, it got off to a fast start. I know in Tokyo, we had uh, in the first month, we had uh, Jim Mattis and uh, seniors from NSC, Matt Pottinger, uh, come out to make the round, to touch base, to check in with counterparts, and to sort of lay out, you know, what the new administration was um, was all about and what it was going to do. But those visits went well, mm-hmm. but I think it was so early we we still didn't quite understand what the new president was about and what he wanted to do with, you know, specifically uh, with Japan, Korea, and maybe others in the Asia region. We do know that Abe gave himself a pat on the back that he had gotten in early to see Trump and maybe that had helped to to uh, to skew Trump's thinking towards Japan in a more positive way. Yeah, he was he was at Trump Tower in New York. Yeah, quick with golf, fast with golf clubs and all. Yeah. Uh, didn't get Japan off the hook, but it may get Japan a little more favorable consideration. It did, it seemed like it turned out, it turned out that way. I mean, for, for good reason. I mean, I think even you strip away, you know, a lot of the rhetoric, political rhetoric, Japan is still, you know, our aircraft carrier, our anchor, our key partner, the most wherewithal in Asia, particularly in the face of the challenges uh, we, 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 we have. So they came out, made the rounds and we said, yeah, this is, this is pretty good. But uh, fire and fury, you know, engulfed us all. Because it, it was so early on that this this rapid fire staccato back and forth it just suddenly you know burst on the scene no pun intended mm. um, between Kim and, and, and Trump that it had everyone I know in Tokyo our Japanese senior counterparts were edgy like what is this but it it got edgier when the rhetoric from Washington and from well known trusted senior sources in the military was sort of echoing. Mm. That yeah, we may be heading towards preemption, you know, and certain senior officials I won't name came out and said things that really got the highest levels of the Japanese government concerned about whoa, you know. So everyone was guessing. Yeah. The Japanese were guessing about how far the Trump team would go. Would they miscalculate believing all their rhetoric and yeah. what does a bloody nose actually yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, the Koreans, of course, I wasn't in country here, but we I could sort of f- at least even feel what they were feeling here mm-hmm. and talking with Korean diplomats in, 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 in Tokyo. And then of course the Chinese and even the North Koreans. So for that period of six months, you know, Trump came out, he spoke to the at the Korean National Assembly, uh, he came to Tokyo right. and said um, and it didn't resolve or tampen down the concern. You know, timing is everything. Uh, the coincidence of the Olympics, pre-scheduled, already set. Sure. Just it it provided a, an off ramp. I didn't read it, but Bolton's book is out there, and you you, know, you can go through all the histories now, recent histories of what actually went sure. down then. But we were at a point; even the Chinese, you know, were concerned. So when Moon, credit to Moon Jae-in, you know, and that's in short <clears throat> supply these days. Took advantage, maybe opportunistically, but that's okay. To see an opportunity to move on um, uh, some diplomacy and engagement with North as a tension reduction and maybe to do something bigger. I was uh, in a three-on-three meeting, a breakfast, a, a monthly breakfast that the uh, our ambassador in uh, Tokyo had with the chief cabinet secretary. Okay. Uh, and that time it was Suga. Suga, yeah, that's right. And it was one March 2018, and where we're all you know, digesting all that was going on. Next steps, you know. Should we be ready? Because you know, this is you know, if there's going to be some kinetic activity, we all got to be on our tip-top toes. But at this breakfast in in March, the three of us were seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. Our cell phones start ringing. 
I think I told you, maybe. No, I but I, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's uh, the op center in state is trying to reach out to the ambassador and uh, and me if the ambassador is not available. And at the same time, almost Suga's phone is reading, and his uh, his counter his his number two there is uh, Maury. Yeah, Maury's the uh, now the uh, vice foreign minister. Okay, uh, he was here, and so we're taking the call separately, and and the ambassador took it, and we looked over, and he said, "There's something about." A Korean delegation that's at the White House is going to have a, a press announcement on the White House lawn, and yeah. it, you know you could hear the the Japanese going like, "What the fuck is going you know yeah. going on here? Yeah. What is this? You know, heads exploding. The Koreans are like, what on the White House lawn? Like, you know, how, how, I distinctly remember this. How, so. how how did that happen? So anyway, uh, we had to cancel the breakfast or leave early, go back and get back to work. And yeah, lo and behold, it was the announcement from Chung Young and uh, right. uh, So Hun. Yeah. The, the the duo paired for eternity now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. The, themselves taken aback yeah. by what had just transpired. And right? then uh, we were launched on the uh, on the Singapore and uh, ultimately Hanoi initiatives with all the stuff that went on, all the drama in between. But it wasn't fighting. It wasn't shooting. And it was a obviously from the recountings of all that went on from other senior officials, you know, truly contentious period. And, in the tone, style, substance that the president should take, if any at all. Mm. You know, some would just, this is the dead end, don't go there. So yeah, uh, that was uh, right then and there, and uh, we know how the rest of the story played out. Mm. Um, when I came to Korea, I um, I was in a position where I had to play some role in some of the back and forth. I can't say much more about that. Sure. But uh, you saw some of this up close and personal. Yeah. And, um, and then, it, you know, after Hanoi, it all came tumbling down. Yeah. So maybe it was a misguided effort. I've always thought that, you know, we've been working on this piece for three decades. We had the agreed framework that probably, you know, we spent more money on the agreed framework uh, and got as far as we did. And then it came to an end, North Koreans doing bad things, but also our side, axis of evil, you know, we're not going to do business with these guys. And then we got into the six-party framework, that uh, six-party talks it made progress and died, mm. leaked the ideal, you know, yeah, didn't even get very, out of very didn't short, get, get very out short of, lived, didn't get out yeah. of the nest, you know, it was dead yeah. on DOA That's almost, right, yeah. and then nothing, strategic uh, ambiguity. But here, first time ever in 30 years, the president is actually directly involved in talking with this new guy, yeah. the youngster who's still learning on the job early, early enough on that maybe he hasn't turned out to they be- They might have both been learning on the job, to be yeah, fair. Well, I don't know what's learning was going on one side, <laughs> well, but- Fair enough. <laughs> it was fascinating to see that forever it was bottom up, yeah. bureaucrats trying to generate, and there was never enough political say to allow either side to do it. But with the two principles involved, it's amazing what can be done, no surprise. Yeah. But of course, uh, the setup was not there, and uh, for whatever many, many reasons, yeah. Hanoi was the, uh, was the end of that. Yeah, I, I I feel we didn't play our hand out well enough that you know we could have still maintained a hook, yeah, without cashing it all in. But there were forces at play here, uh, Bolton and the team that you know wanted to pull this down as fast as possible. And, and, and Trump wasn't the right interlocutor for this, of course. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, uh, we are where we are today. You can point to in many reasons why you point back to the denouement. Yeah. In Hanoi, and, and they run up to that. So, mm. again, not pointing fingers who's responsible, but there was an opportunity there. It only went so far, and now we're back into uh, tit for tat escalation, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, yeah. now prompting the uh, the Koreans to rightfully, at some level, justifiably ask about, you know, why not us? To the, the South Koreans, yeah, yeah. asking why, yeah. why not us? Why not our own our yeah. own ultimate deterrent? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah this is. Uh, Stay tuned, all KEI uh, audience and listeners, because we'll be running lots of programs and, and that's stuff all, that's on all this. In, in, yeah. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the alliance, you know, we get back to the issue of the senior partner. Yeah. <laughs> How can we make that pill go down more acceptably to the Koreans? And hopefully, Yoon has caught on now that his out of school rumbling or ramblings aren't in their longer term interest. Specifically, the recent recent remarks. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, so um, I've jumped way ahead here. In the no, script, no, so. it's, I mean this is this is where we again yeah. the interconnection of all these things, but we're getting to this point where uh, these connections are sort of direct. So it's not it's yeah. six years ago, but 
course, I know that. But even when you say it, I'm sort of surprised recognizing, yeah, that was six years ago, six but years it feels ago. like yesterday. It feels, feels fresh, um, but it was so unusual. It um, was, and then things moved so fast. And obviously, the pandemic yeah. had its own um, you know, disruptive effect on Absolutely. On and that's what we do forget about. Like my, half my tour was... It was truncated, but spent managing the uh, the COVID with the Koreans, just keeping yeah. our people healthy and safe. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, there were other some other things going on, but not so much. It was a. I'm, I I have as you know I I had a few more questions. I just want to center in on one of them. Okay. Um, in the interest of time, um, and that sort of during this period that we've been discussing and since, um, U.S. allies like Seoul and Tokyo have had to navigate notably worsening relationship uh, relations between uh, Washington and Beijing. Um, you say between themselves? And between one another. And that, that actually relates to this. Uh, that's part of this question. And and what many have observed to be, I think rightly, the, the broader untethering of the post-war international order uh, and global economy for man-made and, and also not man-made reasons. Or I guess depending on how you view COVID's creation. So, but we won't go down that road. Um, what do you see as a key difference in the Korean and Japanese perspectives and approaches to their relationship with the U.S., but also these broader trends, the U.S.-China relationship and its, you know, its its sort of deterioration, um, and this broader untethering I speak of. Yeah, I mean, at the largest macro, this is a function of geography and history. Mm. The Japanese historical relationship, I think in many ways, is driven by the fact that they're a chain of islands and not connected sure. to the mainland. And Korea, conversely, is and has sure. felt that much more directly. We, uh, of course, have not long, but deep roots now in, uh, in East Asia, and particularly, especially with Japan and Korea, having gone to war against one, having fought a war with the other, yeah. and the ties that connect our countries are strong in many of the similar ways. But the difference in the relationships between Tokyo and, well, I shouldn't say Tokyo, but between Japan and U.S. and Korean U.S., um, a function of the, of the politics, there's a consistency and constancy to Japanese mm. policy. Uh, at least at a broad level. The LDP is a conservative monolith. Yeah. They have variations among themselves. But sure, they're sure. just right. I wouldn't even say, well, there's some center right in the LDP, but it's mostly right. We've only seen once recent, in recent history, uh, you know, the opposition this uh, is a good point. come into play yeah. here. So yeah. our dealings with them, there's a constancy. So we're talking about the same issues, modifications, evolution of the same issue. Uh, we've always wanted Japan to be able to do more in recent history. Of course, we didn't want them to do more back in 40s and 30s, 40s, and, and even the 50s, although we wanted them there as a bulwark of support mm. for us, what we do. But now we're looking more proactively to draw them in. And this is just feeding on a lot, a lot of ways on what Abe's vision was, but a reflection of the conservative side where they, yeah, we need to be out there uh, partially for, you know, to fulfill Japan's legacy. It's, I mean, some Abe looked at that very narrowly, you know, going his family roots and the generation his parents and grandparents represented. There's a, I would call it a manifest destiny for Japan, but they, you know, I think, and this is being very glib, they, they will still argue after a dozen sakes or so, or maybe less, that they were done a bad deal, they were misunderstood uh, in some ways in what they were trying to accomplish. It, it went awry, it went wrong. You know, the attack on Pearl Harbor was wrong and all that stuff. But there's something there, there. So they 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 want to work with us. We're partners. They depend upon us. But at some level, you know, they want to reestablish their own footprint and identity. Yeah. So what I'm seeing in the the new defense policy, and still got a long way to go, is that this is the, the first manifestations of independence, uh, maybe a little more distance from the U.S., you know, striking aircraft manufacturing deals with the Italians and the U.K. I mean, not getting too far out of the NATO fold, but still, you know, not so over-reliant on the U.S. And that gets back, of course, to this this fear that Koreans talk about and, uh, you know, that what comes next in the U.S. You know, the, the U.S. Sure. has changed. Sure. The U.S. in the last six years has changed. You know, we're looking at the world order and the Asia order, you know, China bad, everyone else good. And so they're learning to 
quickly adjusting to that new formula. And the Japanese, I would say, are better at lobbying and working with us. Mm. They have a deeper bench in Washington, a deeper constituency, sure. and they're they're much more effective. This constant and consistent government generally says the right things. The Korean political system is rambunctious, government in, government out, and the whole order almost turns upside down, although I'd say that the, the facets of the alliance remain largely in place, a lot of rhetoric out there, but the politics are different and the personalities are different. You don't see any personalities like you do with, you know, Yun Suk-yeol or anybody. I mean, to come up through the ranks, the filtering system in Tokyo, I mean, in Japan is so effective that, mm. you know, no troublemakers or outsiders can find their way to power. Mm. This is this is. Uh, I made an observation lately, and this is uh, just to be clear. This is my feeling, my assessment, just a reflection that I agree with a lot of what you just said. That the Japanese are so effective at diplomacy, and particularly with the U.S., that they often get credit for things they say they're going to do and haven't yet done, overflowing effervescent credit. No from their interlocutors in DC and the Koreans don't get credit for things they've already done. Right. And part of that is things that the, the Koreans themselves need to work on in terms of their own PR, strategic communications, things like this. Yeah. But and it's this proclivity to just keep getting in your face. And, 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 <laughs> and a style of, uh, <laughs> I won't say- An endearing this, but, style, yes. But, but sake has a different aftertaste than soju is what-, yeah. <laughs> what, what uh, You like the soju, uh, that, I like you know the, the rambunctious yeah, it's, environment's fun, but for diplomacy and statecraft, maybe less it's, effective. There, there's, there's a distinct uh, uh, difference in the effect it has and yeah. outcomes and, and, and perceptions, I should say, right? Yeah. But when you dig into the nitty-gritty details, yeah. the Koreans do so much. Maybe they don't say things as robustly as, as Washington would like and send signals, well. but – but again, I think this is a piece that the alliance, both sides, can work on to better understand but better craft um, their understanding and messaging. Um, yeah. Well, there's rivalry and competition going on and bad feelings going on between the two capitals, of course. Oh, for sure. Historically, even the present. And by that, um, you mean and, Tokyo and, and Seoul. Tokyo, yeah. And, yeah. You know, and the Japanese, for a long time, have not been supportive of the Koreans getting more spotlight or primacy of place or even... You know, they're not encouraging, haven't been encouraging for them to be invited to the G7 as guests, even mm -hmm. though they might do it this coming year. I think tactically it may be a thing for them to do if, if the two leaders can somehow sure. have a meeting of the minds on a way forward. But the Japanese quietly badmouth the Koreans, you yeah. know, when it comes to these international venues and hosts uh, of things. They don't necessarily want to see the Koreans come up as the other Asian. Yeah. Uh, it's not a rivalry because the countries are still different, but nonetheless... Uh, yeah. it, it's still there. And then there's much less, of course, that meets the eye when you look at the new security and defense policies that Japan has, has put out. The rhetoric is good. It's broad. It's ambitious. Historically, it's a jump up. But I think in real world terms, it's incremental, even in its own right. Although, yeah. But it's a, it's a pathway for the next four or five, six years uh, for them maybe to go down. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the big difference is, and you know this, the Koreans are operationally synced with us. Yeah, it's we're, a different ballgame. We're synced to fight tonight. Yeah. In Japan, it's not only we're not synced, we're not co-located. The, the whole mindset uh, of what is proactive defense or even offense is not internalized in any shape or yeah. doctrine whatsoever. Not a criticism of Japan, it's just a reflection. This is a reality. Uh, this, a reflection. Is, this, is, this was stripped yeah. away in 1945. Yeah. How, to, how to run a campaign, how to fight a war, how to supply a war. And, broad brushes. So they have work to do to lash up with us. And I know our side recognizes that we've got work to do, but this is this is years in the making. And then Chinese, of course, are the are the gorilla in the room that everyone's watching their reactions. Mm. Well, Rob, we've been discussing a lot of uh, deeper and also contemporary history, but I think it's important to situate us right where we are today and think about uh, what are the key trends and events that that we as Korea watchers should keep an eye on in the next uh, six plus months? Thanks, Clint. It's certainly a good question. I think uh, the proper way to sort of wrap up our extended conversation here. Yeah. We threw a lot at our listeners today, um, but it would, I think, be in their interest uh, to to come to a, a point, and what better point to focus on than the immediacy of the of the current moment? Where have we been in the last year, 
and where are we going this coming year in the U.S.-Korea relationship. I would say uh, in watching uh, the U administration since its inauguration back in May of 2022, that it's moved very quickly, uh, tracking precisely with most of the campaign themes it laid out. And first among uh, those was a rejuvenation of the alliance with the United States. And that was reciprocated by the Biden administration in so many ways, most specifically in holding a summit within the first two to three weeks of uh, Yun's uh, presidency. And I think that cemented a relationship, a proactive relationship where both sides were able to eye to eye, uh, exchange views and the commonality of interests are, are tremendous. Much of it focused on uh, returning uh, to the status quo ante on deterrence against North Korea and bolstering that. And of course, a bigger question or tied to the deterrence question is the matter of assurance to South Korea about the U.S. commitment. And I think both sides have done a remarkable job, but it's been Yun who's driven a lot of this uh, and he gets credit for that. Uh, he's also uh, laid out a policy, a foreign policy, uh, where he uh, aspires Korea to be a so-called global pivotal state, which means taking on many more responsibilities that a, a middle power, a rising middle power should be, which is promotion of democracy, liberty, values, uh, the international uh, order uh, he's committed to protect and taking many steps to uh, lock that in. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the primary venue where that was revealed uh, concretely was the summits uh, were the summits in Cambodia back in November, where there were bilateral meetings both with President Biden, but also importantly, a trilateral meeting with the Japanese, where they enunciated very clearly uh, these regional and global goals to promote the values all countries uh, see. And tied into that, of course, in the last month or two, we've seen a rather, uh, not a rather, but a very bold proposal by Yun to somehow cut the Gordian knot on improving relations with Japan, neighbor Japan, where mm. it's a long history between uh, the two. And we've talked about this already at some length in the, uh, uh, in the, in the previous hour, but uh, he did take the step. He's cut the, the knot, but it hasn't come without political cost. Uh, it's turning out, not surprisingly, this is a very uh, unpopular move in Korea, up to 60% of the Korean population uh, doesn't approve his initiative because it's what they see in the initiative is that Korea has conceded on many key points, particularly related to conscripted labor issues in the Supreme Court case. Uh, he went to Japan to, uh, to lock that in and to uh, talk in person to person with uh, Prime Minister Kishida. And yet uh, to this day, and this is several weeks after the uh, proposal announced, the Japanese have yet to offer anything uh, that looks reciprocal in nature, uh, addressing the key requirements, demands of uh, the Korean public and in particularly the Korean victims of conscripted labor, an apology and some form of uh, a token of compensation from the, uh, the, uh, the Japanese companies that were involved in mm -hmm. the forced, uh, forced labor uh, back in, during the colonial World War II period. So uh, something to watch, watch that space. Uh, Yun is full in on this. Uh, he's gonna see it through. The US is very supportive. We were very supportive right out of the gates. Uh, because this is the opening that will allow or provide the opportunity for Korea and Japan to strengthen their relations across the board, but particularly in the Security Alliance. And that could be very helpful. That will be very helpful from a trilateral perspective, as all countries are now would be much more in lock sync in dealing with common threats, uh, particularly North Korea and its mm -hmm. missile and nuclear threats, but also in a larger sense, uh, a signal to China. Uh, that uh, you know this uh, trilateral cooperation is a factor and part of the uh, the U.S. approach to uh, responding to the challenge that China presents. Mm. And when you think about uh, that, obviously we have the upcoming summit, uh, the which, which will be the is it third? It will be it will be the first state visit in in a decade, but it will be the. The third summit meeting between you and Biden since yeah, the start of his, you know, I mean, maybe fourth technically. They, they, I'm losing count. I mean, we loosely every time leaders meet, we use the, uh, the expression summit. summit sure, you know, but there are some summits that are more summit summity than sure. you know, just a yeah. bilateral meeting, and this will be a big one. Mm. Uh, of course, 
It'll be commemorative of the 70th anniversary of the Alliance, and rightly so. Uh, the uh, the Alliance deserves that reflection of how far we've come, and, and of course, the many more years we have to go. I believe he's been invited to speak to Congress, which is a rare opportunity. I think the last um, president uh, who spoke to Congress, I was actually uh, on the scene at that time, on the Korea desk as director, was uh, Park Geun-hye. Mm. And so, was, and went to the, the the house chamber to listen to her speech. So it was it was very well received, and you know it's an important marker on the importance of uh, of the relationship for both sides. But you know, in addition to the pomp and circumstance, which is important, uh, the commemoration of this anniversary uh, of the alliance and the partnership we've engaged in is uh, there's business to be done, and it's not going to be necessarily easy business. Both sides have expectations of the other on some very tough issues. The U.S., I believe, uh, as it's laid out, its global policy, national security policy, will be expecting allies, in particular Korea, to align itself even more uh, with some of the policies that the Biden administration has laid out, particularly in the economic security side, dealing mm -hmm. with semiconductors, electric vehicles, and batteries. But also, uh, on the strategic front, um, looking for Korea to, to take that extra step forward, and also in conjunction, perhaps, with Japan. On the other hand, the Yun team going into Washington has some expectations and hope that the Biden team will give them some relief on these very issues that uh, uh, so, uh, so uh, let's say, will, will impact Korea's high-tech industry, particularly in the semiconductor and electric vehicle battery, because Korean companies are so invested in China. Mm -hmm. And the, the Biden administration approach goes after China but in this particular instance, there's collateral damage to be had, and that would be primarily from a Korean standpoint, companies like Samsung, uh, SK, mm -hmm. and a few others. So I'm sure you know, going on as we speak uh, in preparation for the summit, both sides are leaning on the other to uh, look for some wiggle room and some progress that will relieve the concerns they have. I'm hopeful that some of these can be resolved, that there'll be some relaxation of the strict requirements that the administration is putting on high-tech companies, like green companies that do invest uh, and work in uh, China in the high-tech area. Um, but it's gonna be tough. You mm -hmm. know, there are strong domestic pressures in the US to apply a uniform approach here uh, and to squeeze the Chinese in these very sectors that have strategic uh, application, particularly in the military side, yeah. dual-use type stuff. So uh, it remains to be seen what's gonna come of it. I'm sure on the surface level, it'll be a very positive, uh, uh, event, uh, one that we can look at and be, you know, happy that it indeed it, it did, com you know, well commemorate the anniversary of the uh, of the, se the 70th anniversary of the alliance. But at the same time, we will have to watch closely the statements, the joint statements, the deliverables list that comes out from this to see if the Koreans get this kind of satisfaction they're looking for, or will they continually um, be concerned on that front? And then the U.S. will be looking to uh, Korea for for similar flexibility on aligning itself further with US policies. Sure. So big day, I think it's April 26th. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and then quickly into the summit uh, mode continues, you know, just a month later, I think Japan, uh, Prime Minister Kishida will be hosting in Japan, in, mm -hmm. in Hiroshima, a city I spent a lot of time in over my career. Um, he'll be hosting the G7 uh, heads of state, heads of government um, for that summit. And I think appropriately, Japan has uh, invited a handful of uh, guests of the G7 to come, and Korea's uh, right at the top of the list of those invitees. So it tracks with the effort to by both countries to improve relations between them. And so hopefully, you know, this will be another opportunity for this, for this bilateral relationship uh, between uh, two neighbors separated by only 70 miles, but uh, 500 years of history yeah. uh, to see if they can you know, bring that closer together in their interests and our interests as well. Yeah. As you said, a lot of high level diplomacy, but the key will be what, you know, what comes out in the joint statements. And then of course, moving forward, how are these many mutual uh, commitments and promises sort of holistically synergized, so to speak, or not? Yeah, in this in this dynamic alliance, so and there'll be pressure to make sure that the outcomes, you know, even if there are differences, those are smoothed over in a way. Of course, so no, no, neither side has any interest in uh, you know, making frictions public. No, but of course, you know, the press's duty on both sides, but particularly the Korean side, is to find those friction points and yeah. put them out. So you know, this is an ongoing task for all administrations, for all diplomats, is sure. to uh, you know find that common ground to. Have the relationship lean forward, and of course, 
be responsive to the questions of concern that do come up. Yeah. And of course, for career watchers like like us and and researchers and analysts like myself to to you know to point out those differences so as to find ways to to improve upon True. them. Of course, um, exactly. Since we are both democratic allies, yeah. and that transparency is key. The only, uh, I mean, there are many other facets because the relationship between Korea and the U.S. now is so complex, mm. broad, deep in so many ways, which is good. You know, the, the, these fibers that we've talked about, about the relationship continue to grow people to people, cultural, mm. strategic, economic, commercial. Um, one constant in, in, in all of this, of course, um, is North Korea. Yeah. And they're not standing still. Uh, this is a dynamic constant because Korea North Korea continues to uh, develop the uh, capabilities that increasingly threaten South Korea and the region and the, and the globe for that matter. So it behooves, uh, of course, us, Korea, the US and Japan and others to keep pace, if not keep ahead of that. But I fear we're in right now uh, in the process of rejuvenating the alliance to ramp up the deterrent function or feature of the alliance and at the same time the U.S. ramping up its assurance feature of the alliance to reassure Korea that indeed our commitment is strong and solid. Mm. We have some turbulence in those discussions. An old, an old conversation has resurfaced in recent months, and that's the, uh, the specter of North or South Korea acquiring its own nuclear weapons or yeah. not. At the moment, it seems that the, the, the first uh, uh, the first discussion about this or the first uh, appearance of the topic in in, in the public eye. Has, has has receded. There's been a lot of expert commentary on that, and I'm sure quiet discussion between the two governments. But it looks like the government, the Korean government itself, has put that back on the box and put its priorities now on strengthening the extended deterrence uh, function of the alliance, which mm -hmm. is the appropriate way to go. But that uh, that hasn't quelled uh, the churn in in, in discussion, mm. uh, and it keeps you know it keeps the issue alive in ways that uh, the the administrations on both sides have to be attentive to it. And that's why we see this very, uh, very, very active deterrence assurance mm. uh, engagement going on, which then raises a larger question about this escalatory spiral as we continue to uh, deter and assure, and the North Koreans continue to provocate. Uh, what's the end game here? Mm. And right now, diplomacy is on the sidelines. The North Koreans are not showing much, if any, interest at all in diplomacy, uh, and we're not showing much in, of any interest in enticing or drawing the North Koreans out to engage in diplomacy. Uh, so how long can this, uh, this um, situation continue without yeah. hopefully not a, a miscalculation in, uh, in the series of defensive drills and military provocations? That are sure, going? sure. Well, I, I, concluding on a, a cautionary and, and somewhat uh, pessimistic note, but obviously this is a uh, a part of this complex relationship in history, which we've explored in so many ways um, today. So I want to just begin. I want to wrap this up. Um, I want to talk a Get lot a more. Uh, yeah, I uh, <laughs> because there's so many threads you just unwound. We yeah, unwound. You know, this that, is getting out on the edge here. This is no, where you but, start getting into cutting across uh, sort of uh, you know uh, religious grounds in terms of yeah. The, well, the, this, the community out here is dug in on you know so many. But this is where we're. This is the direction things are things are going, and uh, and it's grounds for a lot more analysis and discussion. And fortunately, I, speaking for myself, and I know the, some of the projects we have in the pipeline here at KEI, we will be looking at at some of these very issues okay. uh, in great depth, and doing so with a range of perspectives from from Korea and the U.S. Um, I didn't, I didn't presage this question for you, so I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Two book recommendations, one for that you would make, for one for people who are sort of already career watchers, already in the know on Asia that you find really good, that you would recommend, new, old, whatever, and then a book recommendation for someone who said, I want to learn about Korea, but I know nothing about it. What would that book be? So what's the book for the... Uh, the, the experts, so to speak, and then the the neophytes. Yeah, you know what? Having done this so long, certainly the last 10 years, I don't read many books on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I see the reviews. And I know that someone's put out, you know, a, sort of a, a piece focusing on, on these areas. I mean, we see a lot of papers. And, of course, the State Department uh, is producing papers. And I'm reading all sorts of intelligence papers out sure. there. So it's like a continuum of analysis assessment. Uh, 
you know, I saw this on a tweet in uh, last year sometime, and it was someone remarking that they had found this old book uh, that had some very interesting things to say about Koreans in the U.S. military. This was mm. a book written in the early 60s. Okay. Of course, and getting to the punchline here. Korean Americans in the no, U.S. military, no, no. or Koreans like Katusa and the American oh, military. Oh, okay. You know, they, they were just extracting one. This person saw something that was discussed in the book. The book is rather broad, and I'll tell you what the book is. But it's a classic book that I read during my initial language training. It was part of our area studies, to sort of to get you indoctrinated on sort of in political culture. Sure. The Politics of the Vortex. Oh, Gregory Henderson. Yeah, yeah. A fantastic book. Yeah. I've is. recommended that to several. <laughs> Experts who were unaware of the book, yeah, which which tongue in cheek made me question their expertise, <laughs> but but it's a that's a fantastic book. I also do make that recommendation. Uh, yeah, uh, it just has you know, it just it. I mean, it's written in the style. Gregory, give credit to Gregory Henderson. Samuel Huntington wrote the foreword to it, and it's just it was yeah. just uh, you know, it, 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 and you can go back to it yeah. and sort of point to things going on today. I've got it in my uh, office. Yeah. But you do that now for yeah. the one little more modern or ah. Uh, I mean, just for amusement. I mean, six or seven years ago, there was the uh, the orphan master's son. Okay, uh, it's a fiction, but it, for someone who was working on the desk at that time, when you know the uh, Sony hack had mm. just come down, mm. the uh, what was the movie uh, that Sony put out? That uh, uh, yeah, James uh, Franco and yeah, and, uh, which one? What's the interview? The interview. The interview. Yeah, I, mean, I actually was... still haven't watched it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as, as a yeah. practitioner working that issue, and then reading the orphan master's son, which gets into some of that sort of mm. cheesy kind of stuff from the Kim Il Sung. Or sorry, Kim Kim Jong Il. Trying to think of that. I mean, you know, Victor's got his impossible state out there. Sure. But that's a North Korea focus. He's updating. I guess he's coming out with a the, the update to the oh, is the that next, right? Okay. The next the next iteration of the, the still impossible state yeah, or something to that. Very event. impossible state. Yeah, very impossible. <laughs> I watch Netflix. I mean, like the rest maybe, of us. Maybe yeah. I'm just lazy I'm watching Netflix. But you know, there's a lot of uh, interesting Korean shows out there if you want to. You know, get a sort of yeah. snapshot. It's a lot of people's the, intro to the, Korea these the, days. The, is... the undercurrent of yeah. you know discussions that are going on. A bit dra- over dramatized some of them, but sure. Uh, right? And then of course those with a, a, a Korean neck. I mean a U.S. nexus. Uh, I think I told you, you know, about the Lee Byung Hun. Uh, you know the two big roles he played, uh, yeah. Mr. Sunshine and um, in Man Standing Next. Mm-hmm. Man Standing Next is interesting, uh, telling that in the one month period of Park Chung Hee's assassination. Yeah. But then it had a couple of good mock-ups of the ambassador's residence where they staged the scene. I haven't watched that, but yeah. I, I will do so. Ibian Han plays on... uh, sure. Park JQ. Park JQ, okay. Yeah. And then Mr. Sunshine is, of course, so long, it's hard to wade through it. Yeah. All right. Anyway, I'll keep my mind open. No, but this is these are all fantastic recommendations, and I'm, it's something that I plan to ask of yeah. all those we speak to. Um, and there was... I thought there was fun to be had on a very serious issue, but fun to be had through the uh, Isang Han Byung Ho Attorney, the, the attorney, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's at the underbelly of some of Korea's more socially sensitive issues. Yeah, the, the head of the Korean Bar Association. I was just reading, I think, the Herald today. The Korean Herald yeah. was was citing yeah. the movie and talking yeah. about need for certain types of. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing more of that reform. Yeah. You're seeing more of that. Thank you again for um, so much of your time and sharing what is a a really comprehensive lived experience with mm-hmm. this alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we've talked about the people, the people ties, but it's it, this is there are the institutions, um, uh, and all these different factors of the alliance. But it's it's the people who make make up these things that really uh, that uh, make them work. Um, so thank you again, Rob, for your time. Mm-hmm. Um, we look forward to, to, of course, connecting again in the future. Well, thank you, Clint. It's been a pleasure to be here to share some of my experiences, perhaps too many experiences, but nonetheless, <laughs> it was good to get it out. And I hope it's been beneficial to, uh, if not entertaining in some ways, for uh, uh, the listening audience out there. So thank you. Thank you. This concludes part two of my conversation with Rob Rapson. I want to thank Rob once again for sharing his time and his many experiences with us. And please keep an eye on our podcast feed for more Rethinking Korea content.